Halliburton Labs, we're a collaborative environment focused on the success of the entrepreneur. Our mission is to advance cleaner, affordable energy. And uh, a big part of what we're doing is to create this environment or this crossroads where the key constituents, including the entrepreneur, members of the investment community, members of academia, can come together with the industrial capabilities of Halliburton to advance that mission. Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by PISA, the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, Lockton Companies, and Galtway Marketing. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Energy and Transition podcast. This is Leslie Byer, your host. We're back at the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston and so excited to have our guest today, Scott Gale, who's the Executive Director at Halliburton Labs. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Leslie. Great to be on. I can't wait to really get into this conversation about this new effort for Halliburton. Um, I know you're an engineer by background. You've been with the company since 2014. And now they have you leading up this new effort. So let's just talk a little bit initially about what you're working on and what that means for Halliburton. Sure. No, again, appreciate the opportunity to be on. You know, for us, the roots of Halliburton Labs go back about a year and a half, two years ago. And there was a lot of effort to kind of research and unpack kind of what innovation has meant for other industrial companies, other sectors, looking ahead to sort of the future of innovation and thinking about what that what that means and certainly our engagement with the startup community more broadly and so that all kind of culminated in this model that is now kind of our strategy around Halliburton Labs and what that what that means and looks like and so you know for for us we looked at some companies like Bell Labs and Kodak and Lockheed Martin and and a few others and and I think what's really important is looking at what worked and what didn't work and then not just changing for change's sake, but looking internally and saying, what are some of the unique and distinctive things that we can bring to this this discussion? And so what that has culminated in is Halliburton Labs were a collaborative environment focused on the success of the entrepreneur. Our mission is to advance cleaner, affordable energy. And uh, a big part of what we're doing is to create this environment or this crossroads where the key constituents, including the entrepreneur, members of the investment community, members of academia, can come together with the industrial capabilities of Halliburton to advance that mission. 
Well, that's such a leadership role for Halliburton in this space. And that's really what you know, this podcast, I mean, that's our main area of focus is talking about how innovation and technology is really driven by oil and gas and oilfield services companies. And they're going to lead us to a lower carbon future and a lot of these new technologies that y'all are looking at. So I just, I see that and I just think it's particularly impactful to take on such a huge project for a leader in the space like Halliburton. Um, and to really say, hey, we want to advance these emerging technologies. We realize where we're headed. Um, and I just, I see that as a critical part of how the rest of the industry really should be coming on board. Um, and it seems like that's really, you know, from Jeff Miller on down. So can you talk about maybe how he drives that from the top? Yeah, I would say for us, you know, it's a recognition that the energy system of the future, if you will, will be different than what it is today. That change is coming, but it's, it's, it's a long game. It's not like we're two or three years away from some big material impact. Oil and gas is going to be around for a long, long time. Halliburton is a proud oil field services organization. And, but this recognition that demand for cleaner, affordable energy is rooted in whatever the source might be, whether that's energy poverty or climate change, what's ever driving that, it is a long-term long-term demand for that is uh, not only just a United States thing, but that's across the entire world. And so quality of life and what clean, affordable energy does for the human population is something that we, we completely recognize. And the other thing, too, is that the energy mosaic is going to be made up of a lot of different kinds of technologies. A lot of different things are going to need to come together to be able to usher in that new energy future. And so the model is intended to give us visibility to all of those different things as, as things are unfolding. Nobody knows where this is going to lead. It's going to take time. It's going to take decades. But for us, in the form of Halliburton Labs, we're raising our hand and saying we want to be active participants in this space. And by doing so, it gives us kind of a front row seat to the different technologies that are coming across. And that's something that we have unique and distinctive capabilities to help these companies in the early days of their of their journey. And that is something that we're excited about in in bringing that bear. And so it's uh, for us, it's a it's a we're using our invested capital and our capabilities that we have and putting them to work in a unique way. And that allows us to be active participants in what is a very exciting uh, kind of the front end of this energy transition. That's right. And I think one of the most critical things that we talk about when we talk about how oil and gas is not going away um, is that our companies are the ones that understand how to, how to develop this at scale. And so Absolutely. it sounds like you bring the scale. You can find these emerging technologies and then help support them um, and so how does that work exactly? I know you just, you just, um, have your first cohort coming in. Is that right? Yeah, our application process is live now. That'll, uh, end in the early November. So we're coming up on kind of the tail end of that application process for our January cohort. That'll start, uh, beginning of next year. And it is, uh, we've got our, a pilot company that's working with us right now. So we've had them, uh, for a bit over three months. And so we really are sort of actively learning while doing kind of thing. I joke that kind of on the comment around scale that Halliburton have a lot of scar tissue taking technology to scale. We've been at it for a long time. And that in the conversations that I'm having with startup founders, the, and have this conversation at least twice this week, 
is as an early stage company, you've got line of sight to what you're going to do for the next three months, maybe six. And after that, you don't know what you're going to bump into. But the odds are really good that whatever you bump into, Halliburton has run into 50 times over. And the right conversation with a, the, a, a curated, I call them curated mentorship engagements uh, with the right Halliburton person can save an early stage company months and months of headache and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And so that's our model is we're effectively providing an industrial wrapper around an early stage company over the course of 12 months. It's nearest akin to kind of an accelerator model. So we take a percent of equity in the form of a modified safe and really low friction. We're not asking for rofers or board seats, no IP entanglements, whatever they invent while they're with us belongs to them. That's a unique part of it. You know, when you and I mentioned, we were visiting about this the first time a few weeks ago, it seems like with a lot of incubators, there are IP sharing, you know, kind of situations. And and it really sounds like that's not the case, that you're really just lifting these companies up. I think that's a particularly unique part of this. It's really a key factor of what we're solving for is, again, the success of the entrepreneur, the success of the startup company. And so the environment that we're building is solving for that outcome. And so whenever we come across something that might be a hurdle or increased friction or issues, that's what we're solving for. And so we want participant companies when they graduate, so to speak, from Halliburton Labs, that they're highly investable and some type of entanglement with Halliburton is going to diminish that. And, and you're right, there, there are incubator programs that are connected to universities or other things that are part of tech transfer programs and bringing technology in. And in, anytime you've sat in you know, these investor discussions, it's always a question on IP. Do you have ownership of the IP? Where is it? How are you handling that? And so we've really made deliberate efforts to maintain a low friction environment for the entrepreneur and think that's a, a critical factor in terms of attracting the right kinds of startups to participate. Right. And that's just very interesting. So you mentioned a lot of these partnerships and there are other incubators in academia and all that. And I've seen Halliburton Labs, you know, partnerships with a lot of what City of Houston is doing, a lot of the Baker Institute at Rise. Do you want to talk about any of that? Like kind of what happens in those coalitions and are those oil and gas companies um, or are they just, you know, what what does that universe look like? Yeah, sort of the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in Houston and and honestly around the world is is really fascinating and really robust. And it's been uh, a really fun part of the job in, in interacting with those groups around the world. And it is a well-established, thriving ecosystem. And so we really are kind of a new kid on the block in that sense of kind of stepping in. And we bring some unique things to the table, but we don't have all the answers. We have very few of the answers here in the early days. And so we're a startup in and of ourselves. And so for us, we're really trying to position ourselves as kind of the graduate program to some of these incumbent incubators and accelerators. And they bring really important skill sets to early stage companies and first time founders around how to pitch, how to think about product market fit and kind of those key early steps in a startup's journey. But as they progress and they go from zero to one and they have kind of a proof of concept as they're preparing to go from one to 10 or 10 to 100, there's a lot of other difficult questions that they are going to bump into. And oftentimes they have advisors or board members or mentors or things to kind of help them work through that. But what we're doing with Halliburton Labs is deliberately creating uh, an environment where as those issues come up, that they're able to address those quickly. 
And so that that's something that comes in the form of access to Halliburton facilities, whether that's our laboratory facilities or manufacturing facilities, access to the Halliburton Rolodex, which I've already kind of touched on a little bit, but then also our extended business network. And so that's something that we're creating kind of that backstop of we're operating at industrial scale. They have the ambition of operating at that scale and that enables them to make those steps faster at a lower cost. And so that's really something that's, that's compelling in terms of where we fit in the broader kind of overall ecosystem. So all to say that we're very active in connecting with those different organizations because we want their companies, their portfolio companies to be aware of the resources that are being made available so that they can plan for that in their journey. And then when the timing's right, then we're here and ready to help. So I'm sure over the course of all that, a lot of maybe this emerging, you know, startup, they have this great new technology. They don't know anything about Halliburton. They come in, you know, y'all kind of help them and you give them your resources. There's got to be some interaction with everyone else at Halliburton. So what's that been like culturally, um, you know, as the whole rest of that team kind of gets a little bit on board and involved in this? How do they touch these startups? Sure. And we're in kind of a warm up period right now, because obviously with uh, kind of the world of COVID and 2020, there's sort of limited campus access and some other things that we're certainly cognizant of and and are are have all the right kinds of things in place to 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 make sure that people are doing things safely and 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 appropriately given the environment uh and so we're solving for both kind of this in person again access to facilities and things you you got to be there physically um but then also in terms of the mentorship engagements and other things and so you know participants in Halliburton Labs they get badge access to the campus. And so the, the amenities at Halliburton's global headquarters and what that looked like. And so we really do anticipate a day when campus is fully open and we've got these startup participants on campus with the, with the, the Halliburton employee population. And it's, it's something that we have spent a lot of time in the buildup, even before we uh, announced Halliburton labs of getting that right in terms of what would, what, what are the, what does that mean in terms of a startup participant being on campus? They've got to follow the Halliburton safety rules and all of the various protocols. And we, we do things to, to ensure that the expectations are set appropriately. But, and I've mentioned it previously, is this curated mentorship engagement. And so what it means is the Halliburton Labs team is the front line for that engagement. And so if they need something, they come to us and then we get back into the broader organization and our commitment is that within 48 hours, we've got to meet a 30 minute meeting on the calendar with whomever that might be that they would need to kind of have that conversation with. Uh, and it, in the cases that we've done that so far, it's been really successful. Maybe in, uh, just kind of a quick story around that. Uh, Nanotech Inc., who is kind of our first participant, they had need to do some abrasion testing for some of the things that they're working on. Their, their material science company, and they've got a number of different certifications and tests that they need to do. And they went to check out an outside lab uh, early on in their in their participation just to kind of double check. And it was like a six-week lead time and it was going to be something like just under 10 grand. It was going to be kind of typical. You go to an outside lab, you get these professional certifications done, et cetera. And they came to us and we called around. They gave us the samples on a Friday. We were reviewing results on a Wednesday. 
And there was a cross company charge of a couple hundred dollars or something like that. And so in terms of speed and cost and the capabilities that we have on, on site, uh, are, are certainly areas where we're able to sort of flex our muscle and kind of demonstrate that we move quickly. We do operate at scale and we have access to a lot of different capabilities that we can put to work on behalf of our participants. For sure. So that is, I mean, those are extraordinary resources for any startup. How do you decide who makes the cohort? So our process is uh, a relatively simple one. We have an application process and that's live right now at HalliburtonLabs.com. Those application forms come in, the immediate team reviews them, and we then go out to our extended business network and ask questions and kind of do some diligence. And then as, as we sort of narrow down that list, then we do extended diligence in terms of interviews with the team, reference checks, we do a, a mix of different things, all culminating in a finalist day. And that finalist day will be December of this year. And we will have something like six to eight companies that'll pitch. And then sort of based off of that and the, the curated audience that they'll present to, we will make a decision and bring in something like three to five companies. And we will run that process three times a year. So at maturity, we'll have something like 12 to 15 companies that'll be participating at any time. Okay. So when you're out there talking about this process and what y'all are doing at Halliburton and how you're really trying to help promote these emerging technologies and new energy, what do you say to people that are like, well, well, Halliburton's old field services, that's oil and gas. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. You're trying to put oil and gas out of business, which you and I both know is not the case, that it is about the energy mosaic. But how do you, how do you talk about that? How do you address that particularly from, from where you sit? Sure. We get a lot of companies that come to Halliburton Labs thinking it's sort of like a backdoor into Halliburton. And it's important. Halliburton Labs is not replacing innovation or startup engagement for Halliburton. Halliburton has an incredible organization in technology and our service lines that are working to advance the, the technologies in our incumbent oil and gas space. And so Halliburton Labs really is additive in terms of the activities that we're, that we're bringing. So uh, that's, that's not an issue. I have the conversation with them. It's not a fit for Halliburton Labs, but let me get you in touch with the right person inside of Halliburton. Um, and, and we make those handoffs all the time. I think for, for in terms of the response of, well, why is Halliburton doing this? I think it's, why shouldn't we be doing it? We have as as much background and experience in building a bunch of the incumbent energy infrastructure that exists today. And so it we've got a bunch of capability and some really cool, unique things to bring to, to bring to the table. And I think we're doing it in a in a unique way and in 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 a way that's having an impact. And so when there's skepticism from an early stage company who is a fit and kind of has questions of like, well, does it make sense for me to come and participate at Halliburton Labs? It only takes about 20 to 30 minutes to sort of talk through examples where then it becomes almost a no-brainer. And we always get questions around, you know, it's, early stage companies are always hesitant to give up equity. That's always a big question and concern. And to me, that's just a cost-benefit balance. And so we walk through the benefits, for the, particularly for those that come onto campus and we tour them around campus and show them the facilities. It's always a jaw-drop moment. And it's always something like if you're going to go build your own lab or do something else, coming and hanging out here for a year is going to show you what good looks like. And you're going to be that much better prepared to go make those investments. 
And that has certainly resonated. And the other component around it too that I always like to bring up is back to that investability piece. I have a lot of conversations, not only with early stage companies, but also with venture capital and private equity in the investor world. And in many cases, and I would say in all cases, because I actually can't think of one where it wasn't the case, is that participation in Halliburton Labs is viewed as a de-risking element to their investment. And so we have actually had venture capital uh, representatives come and tour campus and following that make recommendations to their portfolio companies to come and have a conversation with us. And so I think if people take the time to understand what we're doing, what the model is, that once they understand that, it becomes like a pretty clear opportunity. This episode of the Energy and Transition podcast is sponsored by Milestone Environmental Services, whose commitment to environmental stewardship and protecting customers, employees, regulators, and neighboring communities make it a leader in the transition to a cleaner energy future. Milestone provides innovative, dependable solutions for non-hazardous waste disposal, which helps their EMP partners improve efficiency and environmental performance in the production of oil and gas. Milestone builds strong customer relationships with a deliberate, proven approach that industry trusts to keep the environment safe. Known for its passion for customer service, Milestone strives to exceed expectations in all they do. Far ahead, always nearby, that's Milestone. The Petroleum Equipment and Services Association is the global trade association for the oilfield services sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. We support OFS in international trade, supply chain, health and safety, environmental policy, and a number of other areas. Our Energy Transition Committee is focused on sharing best practices in sustainability, collaboration with renewables technologies, and driving a smart energy transition. Please join us at PISA.org. That's maybe the only positive story I've heard about capital investment in our industry um, in a long time. You know, it's just, it's hard, as you know, right now for our companies to attract any capital, but there, there is that ESG investing opportunity. And I think as more companies start to try and focus on efforts like this and certainly showcase them the way that y'all have, I mean, do you see that, you know, helping us to bring some more capital in? I think so. There's no doubt that there is a a lot of capital that's on the sidelines right now trying to navigate and find a way to invest in what that future energy system looks like. And it's it's a challenge because there's a, a, a lot of hot topics today that are really interesting and compelling and there's a lot of different things that are out there. But I don't think anybody knows where the chips are going to settle. Uh, if they tell you that they do know, then they're probably wrong. That's, that's the likely outcome. Um, but there's a lot of things that need to get sorted out. And I think that there really is a unique opportunity for the incumbent energy sector and the kind of new upcoming renewable sector and other things to sort of come together and solve what is the wicked problem of our generation, which is this cleaner, affordable landscape of energy. And it's got to come from lots of different sources, um, but it's it's not an either or equation. It's really not. It's not. But right now in the current election environment, it's certainly being pitched that way. Sure. Um, definitely saw some interesting comments, you know, from the former vice president about you know just ruling out oil and gas forever, which 
I agree with you 100%, is, is not going to be the case. It is about how we can work together. So you mentioned some of these new technologies. I mean, anything specific that's exciting that you've seen come across? Like, is a lot of it solar? Is some of it wind? Is it geothermal? Is it photovoltaic? I mean, what, what do you, what are <laughs> some kind of cool a tech things? There's, there's, there's exciting stuff in every one of those buckets. I mean, solar and wind are actually pretty mature industries right now. They've been around for a couple of decades. And, you know, I would say that the, the natural gas, boom, shale gas in the U.S. has served as the ultimate bridge fuel between renewables and kind of uh, legacy fuel sources. And, and it's something that has allowed wind and solar to get to a more cost-effective state in terms of levelized uh, equivalent cost. And, but there's things like, I think, one of the things we have to be really cognizant of in terms of how things get to scale is the energy density. And the reality is, is that both solar and wind are very kind of diffuse energy sources. And so consequently, they require a very large footprint. And where those materials come from to build the infrastructure that's necessary is important in the overall equation that's considered. And so there's there are things from tidal and wave energy that are very sort of consistent sources that are really interesting. There's certainly, I think that it's only a matter of time until nuclear becomes uh, a, a, a rejuvenated part of the energy conversation because you just can't beat it in terms of energy density. And I think absolutely natural gas plays this really important role in backing up all of these energy systems that are out there that when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining and what that looks like, there's a lot of things, a lot of what we really focus on in in and around Halliburton Labs is a pretty broad remit, but from energy generation to electron distribution and transmission, energy storage, energy conservation, there's this whole equation that needs to be solved for in achieving a lower carbon future. And some of that includes circular economy kinds of technologies as well. And so there's some really exciting, there's unique ways to generate hydrogen through like H2S. There's some really interesting battery capabilities as we think about grid scale battery storage. We know that there's challenges related to that in terms of the environmental impact and the footprint. And so we've got to be very careful about ultimately what we're solving for in all of that. But there are it's it's impressive what human ingenuity can can come up with in terms of the various things that that are possible. I actually fundamentally believe I'm never concerned about the technology being developed. I think that we'll always make the technology happen. It to me it's always a question are we solving for the right thing? And I think that's something that we've got to be actually really careful about in the hydrogen space. There's a lot of buzz around hydrogen and um how that gets generated and what it gets used for and and so while in if you draw the boundary conditions around hydrogen when you when you use it, it's really compelling because you get energy and water like that's how it doesn't get much cleaner than that. But when you sort of walk back the sort of total cost of ownership of the hydrogen economy, what does that mean? How does how does hydrogen get generated and whether that's green or blue or gray or whatever shade of hydrogen is now sort of being talked about? There's a lot that needs to be considered. And that's where I see the next couple of years really becoming important is let's all get on the same page around the things that we're solving for the right kinds of metrics. And so I think some of those things also need to be solved. It's a little bit of an aside as we think about kind of all the different technologies that are coming together. But 
right now, at least for Halliburton Labs, we're pretty agnostic of what the technology is. We just recognize there's going to be a lot of different enabling technologies for, again, this energy mosaic that's coming. Right. And there are technologies, at least lower carbon technologies that are out there already that do y'all touch things right now, like carbon capture, or is it more just new and emerging developments? It's primarily new and emerging developments. I would say things like carbon capture and geothermal are things that Halliburton have been involved with for many, many years. And so we've got a lot of muscles built around those kinds of projects and we deliver those services today. And so uh, from my perspective, that's something that the run rate business is solving for and running with. And so I'm looking a little bit further afield. You know, what's crazy to me is that you know that and I know that, but the broader, (laughs) you know, community of people that are looking at this wicked problem of energy don't understand that. You know, the fact that Halliburton has been involved in carbon capture and geothermal all this time, I feel like, you know, a lot of the companies in the oil field have been, and we just haven't done a great job of talking about it um, or really showing what we do to achieve a lower carbon future. How can we be better at that? I mean, I, I love just the image and the brand around Halliburton Labs. I think it's going to get a lot of attention for sure, but broader, you know, industry-wide, how can we really help get that message out that we are the answer and it's not a binary choice? I think that's coming with time. I, I agree that sort of the, the industry has been, um, we, we tell our, our story sort of amongst ourselves. We all get it. We're very passionate about what we do and understand the value that we bring. And I think it's a bit of kind of the culture of the industry. We just kind of quietly do what we do and, and we don't need to sort of beat our chest about it. And, but I, I, I do think that without sort of that strong counter narrative there, there's policy that's being put in place and there's per- public perception around things that ultimately are going to get out ahead of us if we're not careful. And so I do think that, um, it's something that we're seeing more and more of. And I think that's what we're feeling, particularly here in Houston and, and this, the energy transition sort of taking hold is it's part of it is a recognition. We've, we've got to, we've got to start talking about it. We've got to start telling our story. We've got to start demonstrating the, the great things that we're doing. And so there's no shortage of opportunity there. And I think to, to the small extent that Halliburton Labs can be another voice in the choir, that's something that I'm really excited about. And I think that is, is certainly something that in, is encouraging sort of that next generation of entrepreneur when they look around and they think to themselves, okay, I've got this great idea around this technology, but how am I going to get it from this idea on the back of a napkin to something where there's a, a thousand of them being made a week? being able to map out their journey and have the resources at their disposal to be able to do that, I think is really important. And that's something that we're definitely reaching a critical mass, particularly in Houston, but also around just energy broadly. And, and that I think is really exciting. And that's what I think the next, the next five years are going to be really fascinating as they unfold. Well, as you talk about that, I mean, you touch on another critical piece of this, which is workforce. You know, you have these people that have this new technology, they're excited about it. Um, they, they are being attracted by the tech industry that, you know, they don't want to come to oil and gas and it's on us to, you know, really rebrand ourselves in this way. But I think 
you know, opportunities like the ones that y'all have created really should bring some of that emerging talent to our industry because we, we're the ones that need it. We don't need somebody that can design another smartphone. Like we got enough of those. My, my 12 year old has like, you know, one of those. We need to be able to attract the people that are coming up with these new technologies. Yeah. The talent is something that's just so critical. And, you know, I mentioned a bit of some of the backend research that we did. Some of the things that I spent a lot of time thinking about is what does a thriving startup community look like and where, where have those been established? And it's absolutely something that the city of Houston is focused on and is driving and we're making a lot of really great progress. Um, a, a statistic that was quoted to me by Houston Exponential was in 2015, there were five startup development organizations in and around the city of Houston, not just around energy, but a number of different applications. And Halliburton Labs was the 38th. And wow. so in terms of the number of startup resources that are coming to the city and what that means, I think is super important. And the talent we talk in sort of developing the startup community, you talk a lot about the creative class and sort of what that means in terms of driving innovation and exchange of ideas and curating collisions between all these. And you got to have the right kind of density. You got to have all these different things. But one of the participants in the, in the creative class is engineering and every engineering discipline and science discipline is found in mass here in the city of Houston. And so we have, here in Houston have all of the right elements to be able to go do that. And you can feel it. It's, it's happening. There's a lot of excitement. And I think that what that is only going to do in, in creating a snowball effect is you're going to draw more investment capital into the city. And that's one of the, the gaps today is venture capital on the East coast and the West coast. And how do you get them to the Gulf coast and a lot of deliberate effort around attracting venture capital. And I think that particularly just the state of Texas and all of the, the opportunities that that can bring from a business perspective, you're starting to see that migration. And I do think that, uh, kind of the COVID environment is accelerating that because you're finding that you can work from wherever you don't necessarily have to be sitting in New York city or San Francisco to be able to get access to top flight venture capital. And you're seeing that migration, and I think we're just seeing the beginnings of it. I love to hear that positivity in that because I, you know, from where I sit, I don't necessarily see it. And so, you know, to think that we are attracting those people and that the engineers really are coming together and that there's some uh, a coalescing in Texas. I agree. Our state does a great job of trying to attract that. I think our mayor has done a good job Absolutely. of that. Um, but that is an exciting message. And then to say that it's been accentuated by COVID, you know, it's not all negative. Right. So There's a lot of great silver linings that are out there. No there doubt. are. I mean, y'all were just kind of getting this roll in when everything shut down and you probably had to figure out exactly how to transition. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, you kind of already touched on it a little bit, but, um, it definitely sort of played, uh, a, a role. The, the early thinking had some other kind of key things that we were focused on and we've had to pivot a little bit. And one of those things is we'll be later this year, we'll launch a, an online community that'll be sort of a digital extension of kind of everything we've talked around Halliburton labs. And again, kind of curating those collisions and creating that kind of, 
uh, we'll call it artificial population density and bringing them together. But what's what I think is uh, another important point that kind of reinforces Houston's leadership position in energy and participation in the energy transition is having conversations with startups around the world from Israel to Brazil, UK, New Zealand, Canada, and every one of them knows that they need to get to Houston at some point in their journey. When they're solving an energy challenge, they know that Houston is the destination. And the conversation is always comes to, we've got facilities, we've got office space, we've got all these kind of capabilities. Think about that in terms of sort of lowering your barrier to getting to Houston. And, and that's something that I think is maybe underappreciated as, as we think about our reputation as a city and, and kind of where we're at in the current kind of energy cycle and the political environment and all these things, I really do see really exciting and bright days ahead. I cannot think of a better <laughs> spot to end it on that. <laughs> I mean, I agree. You can be distracted by, you know, the talks of, oh gosh, you know, the market, it's, it's so down, you're losing energy jobs in Houston. Um, but I love this perspective of everything that y'all are doing to reach out and be part of the development of new technologies and then what it brings to Houston. And that will ultimately end up in jobs and that will end up in these great, you know, startups that Halliburton helps fund and get off the ground that ultimately becomes part of the energy mosaic. We really shouldn't fear change em embrace it. Be careful to not, not change for change's sake. Be clear about what it is that you're solving for and what you want to accomplish. But the kinds of disruption that we've seen over the last year, uh, there's always opportunity in that. I agree. Opportunities out there for us. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming by this morning. Happy early Halloween. Um, <laughs> between you, us with our too. seven kids, we'll be you know seeing what <laughs> we'll kind of candy we can get. <laughs> uh, but have a great afternoon. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I want to thank our sponsors, PISA, Galtway Marketing, and Locked In Global Energy and Marine. Please download the Energy and Transition podcast on your favorite platform, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.